Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man who puts the style in hostile foreign forces. Jeremy, how are you, man? <laughs> Stylin'. <laughs> Good evening to you, Kaiser. <laughs> Our streak is broken, though. Uh, it's it's actually not a nice day today. It's all right. It's not polluted. It's just it, it's misty. Not, it just it feels like oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think. Right. So it you, looks. I, you know. I'm that sounds like a myself. euphemism, right? It's, Misty. So, so Jeremy, in May, Narendra Modi took the prime ministership of India in a landslide election by his party, the BJP. Um, since the election, there's been a lot of speculation involving whether Modi, who you know enjoyed a very solid reputation as a prudent economic manager in his home state of Gujarat, uh, would bring reforms reminiscent of those in China, and of course, how he's going to you know manage the important relationship with the other billion plus Asian power across the Himalayas. So China uh, in the new Modi administration is going to be the focus of today's podcast, though not the only subject that we'll discuss. And with that, we are delighted to welcome back Anath Krishnan, who is the China correspondent for the Hindu. And Anath has appeared on our show a couple of times in the past, and he's always been a wonderful guest. So it is great to have you back on Seneca again, Anath. Thank you, Kaiser, and it's great to be back. So uh, while it may be a love fest here, it hasn't been a total love fest uh, so far. I mean, in, in you know, Sino-Indian relations, as we know, uh, but things do seem to have warmed up appreciably between China and India since the BJP came to power. I, I, I wonder, I mean, is Indian politicking these days kind of like American politicking uh, has been in the last couple of decades where, you know, you, 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 uh, during the campaign, at least, you assume a very uh, anti-China or a sort of tough on China posture. And then once you're in office, you immediately, you know, reach out the olive branch and make nice. Yep. I think it uh, applies with China and Pakistan as well. I mean, on the campaign trail, people say things and Modi, I mean, Modi has an image of being someone who's a strong man and a hardline guy. So I think you had a couple of speeches where you went to Arunachal Pradesh, which is the state which is disputed and China claims. We call it South Tibet. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, China is an expansionist, has an expansionist mindset and things like that. And I think people noticed that in Beijing from at least the sense that I had speaking to both the officials as well as analysts here. But I mean, the minute that he took over, I think it's been completely different. I think the way we, the way he's reached out to not just China, but to Pakistan as well. So I think, I think it's, it's quite similar to what you see in the U.S. And maybe, I think, uh, as far as the Chinese are concerned as well, I think they'll probably become used to it going forward. So let's set the stage here a bit. I mean, how would you characterize Sino-Indian relations during the tenure of Manmohan Singh and his Congress Party administration? How, how, how did things go during that, that span? I think it's uh, it sort of had two different phases. Mm -hmm. And uh, Singh took over in 2004. Right. And a year after that, uh, he signed this major nuclear deal with the United States in 2005. Right. Um, and uh, I think 2005 was kind of a turning point in terms of India-China relations as well. Uh, in China, the nuclear deal was seen as a, a pretty strong statement of India saying it was going to have a strategic closer relationship with the U.S. Um, I think what changed everything was uh, Barack Obama mm. uh, in the sense that uh, I think uh, George W. Bush is probably the one country on the planet where he would have like a seriously high approval rating is India. I think people loved the fact that he went out of the way to court India. And uh, as soon as Obama took over, I think, I mean, the feeling in India as well was that Obama was just not interested in the relationship. I mean, he was focused on getting America out of Pakistan and Afghanistan. He was focused on China. Um, and uh, I think he visited China in 2009 and angered a lot of people in India by telling the Chinese, let's work together. 
in South Asia. So I think Obama sort of played a role in India sort of recalibrating itself a little bit. And uh, probably thanks to him, we saw a little bit of an improvement in uh, India's ties with China as well in a strange way. So two phases. You have the, the, the beginning phase where there was a very clear uh, U.S. turn and then sort of anger with the U.S. over having sort of ignored India during the Obama administration. I th- yeah, maybe not even anger, but sort of more sort of hedging in the sense that I think India has probably become a little smarter in, say, in keeping both countries guessing and, uh, and sort of trying to maximize what it can from both China and the U.S., so, uh, reaction to Modi's election has, like I said, been pretty uniformly warm here in Beijing. Um, the, the China Daily actually heralded it as a new age of cooperation between China and India. Um, what is it that Beijing likes so much about about, about Narendra Modi? Um, I think Modi is sort of uh, India's liberals would say that he's a he's a China kind of leader. I mean, the the sort of in terms of how authoritarian, technocratic. Minority policies. I mean, I mean that's a perception that he had as chief minister that he had a sort of streamlined government where he would, I mean, whatever his word would be the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they also like the fact that he made four trips to China when he was chief minister of Gujarat in Western India, and he sort of went out of the way to court Chinese investment. And I, this was also because of the fact that he was sort of a pariah in the U.S. Because after 2002, when you had these anti-Muslim riots right. uh, in Gujarat, and Modi was, the U.S. decided that they would not give him a visa. So pretty much he couldn't travel to the Western world. The only places that he traveled to were China and Japan. So I think that sort of played a role uh, in the way the Chinese look at him as well. I think they have a sense of uh, familiarity with him. Right. I mean, the Chinese aren't, aren't, aren't have a huge problem with massacring Muslims. <laughs> yeah, I won't, I won't <laughs> comment no, no, on no, that. I'll keep a diplomatic <laughs> silence on that. Right. Um, um, can you comment on uh, ordinary people's reaction, though? I mean, we're talking really about the government reaction, but as a foreigner living in Beijing who has conversations with the... Uh, uh, taxi drivers and uh, and other people. I mean, have you noticed any kind of shift in, in ordinary people's view of India? I, I think it's sort of, I mean, it just reflects what they would read in whether it's like uh, Juan Shoshuba or in the news. That they, I mean, I think they're aware there was an election in India. They're aware there's a strong guy in power. And I think unanimously the feeling is, well, it's good for you guys. It's about time that you started doing things our way. Right. Which is, I mean, that's the kind of sentiment that you'd hear, but nothing more than that. It's not that people, I mean... I mean, people focus closely what goes on in the U.S., but they, I mean, to be honest, it's just that there isn't that kind of attention as you probably, I mean, India is uh, far down the list. It's sort of just very surface, peripheral understanding of what's happening. Yeah, no, no, I I, I know that. I'm from South Africa. (laughs) (laughs) A small country. (laughs) No, but I did have a taxi driver just the other day tell me that uh, you guys should, uh, we both have this, uh, you know, this terrorism Muslim problem. You should do what we do in Xinjiang. Then he made this sort of, you know, he took his fist and sort of slapped it hard on the palm of his hand. Yeah, the iron fist uh, (laughs) gesture. Yeah, you've got Kashmir, we've got Tibet, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, since this is a China show and not everybody here is going to be somebody who pays an awful lot of attention to Indian politics, uh, what's, what's Narendra Modi's personality like? How would you describe him as an individual, as a leader? I mean, if you saw him on the campaign trail, he is a really, he's a hell of an orator. I mean, compared with Manmohan Singh, who is really sort of stiff and quiet. I mean, I I attended a couple of uh, Modi speeches in the previous election. This was in 2009. And I mean, he can work a crowd in a way Mm. that I haven't seen too many people in India. I mean, if you look at his main competitor was Rahul Gandhi. Rahul Gandhi was just awful. I mean, he had no communication skills. I mean, his speeches were just 
awkward and i mean it was just polar opposites i mean it wasn't even a contest mm. from that point of view and i have also i mean i've also heard i mean from in gujarat that he had a reputation of being a very efficient guy and administrator and i mean he there's only i mean his government is a kind of he structures it in a way that it's just i mean he is the guy that decides everything um and i heard someone mention that he would he would be sort of treat the other people in his cabinet like uh you know it was like a classroom he'd be like you know i want information on this give it to me by 5 pm tomorrow and these and these are powerful ministers What? so i mean i mean that's the kind of impression that he has i mean we don't know how accurate that is but it's a pretty widely held view sounds like somebody else i i, I mean a certain chinese leader these is <laughs> what i've heard of him um so uh, taking it back to china earlier this month uh, chinese foreign minister wang yi visited india and he held talks with his uh, his counterpart there uh, sushma swaraj He also met with uh, Prime Minister Modi. Um, can you talk about, a little bit about the atmospherics in those talks and uh, what, if anything, of substance actually seems to have come through the talks? I mean, Wang Yi made some very sanguine remarks about, you know, having reached a basis for a boundary settlement. Um, I mean, so what are the smarter Indian foreign policy analysts saying these days about the prospects for actually resolving the longstanding, you know, dispute uh, the border problems in Aksai Chin in Arunachal Pradesh or South Tibet? I think um on in terms of Wangi's visit I think there was a sense of surprise in Delhi because it was entirely sort of the whole initiative came from China this was right after Modi took over they were they reached out and said we just we want him to be one of the first sort of high level foreign leaders to visit Delhi so he and so he went without any sort of fixed bilateral agenda he sort of just went right. to be a, a you know to to sort of convey that China wanted to start like immediately Uh, with sort of establishing a new sort of level of uh, relationship with the new government in Delhi um and i think that th- if you followed the chinese media there was this there's been sort of an incredible level of uh, this propaganda drive over the last week almost every day you had op-eds saying you know absolutely yes i mean i've never seen this before i mean usually you'd get an op-ed this is a courtship op-ed. a full press courtship right yeah, yeah and i mean and for the first time even like we put in interview requests with chinese leaders all the time and the first time that we got a response was before wang yi went to india though it was a written interview which is i mean the kind of interviews they do here since they don't <laughs> <laughs> like face to face interviews so but i mean i was surprised i mean it's, a, it's something like something i haven't seen in terms of way, the way they are just sort of it's like a full court press in terms of courting him and so what's what's the response in india been to this the popular response let's say I think I mean in India it's there's still a sort of a high level of suspicion and distrust when it comes to China in terms mm-hmm. of public opinion. So if you look at uh, I mean Twitter is a bad place to sort of gauge public opinion because it's I mean there's so many problems with that but I mean the general so- reflection is that why are they being so nice? They must have like a <laughs> dirty game a secret uh, game going on. So but among the sort of foreign policy sort of uh, and strategic affairs a group of people that you saw who write columns and are on the television channels in Delhi i think there's a sense that use this opportunity so i mean because china is facing issues with japan vietnam philippines that's probably one reason why they're being nice so we should so the question is whether we can be smart enough and nimble enough uh, to sort of make the most of this uh, opportunity which might not last 
What about this? Um, uh, the the visits that have been talked about, uh, Li Keqiang, who's nominally at least Modi's counterpart, although I guess it's sort of flipped here, where he's more ceremonial as PM and, and right. And, and, uh, he's invited Modi to visit Beijing. I've also read that Modi uh, has said that he's invited President Xi Jinping to visit India later this year. Have, have either of these been actually confirmed now? I think Xi Jinping will definitely go to India later this year. But before that, they're going to be meeting in uh, Brazil at the BRICS meeting that's going to happen mm. in the second week of July. So that's probably that'll be the first meeting that Modi is having with Xi. And I think there's a little uh, interesting uh, side note to this is uh, Modi was supposed to go to Japan in the on the first week of July. And, right. and the Japanese were really keen that he would meet Abe before he met Xi. But we don't know why exactly, but uh, at the last minute, uh, Modi decided to put off his visit to Japan, and he'll be going in August. So we don't know what, I, I, to be honest, I don't know the reason. I mean, the, the stated reason was there's a parliament budget coming up, so you have to take care of that. But not many people are buying that Right, I, I argument. certainly am not one yeah. who would buy that. Jeremy, what do you think? Does that smell suspicious to you? <coughs> Everything sm- smells suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course it's suspicious. So, um... I, I think there, there's actually even more diplomatic activity that's going to be coming. In fact, tomorrow, is that, is that right? Uh, uh, today is, is Wednesday, uh, the 25th or 24th? Yeah, 25th. yeah 25th. tomorrow evening, our, the, India's vice president is here on a, six, on a long six-day visit. Um, and the visit's mainly for this uh, 60th anniversary of this um, five principles of peaceful coexistence, which is a... Tongue twister, but uh, you, why didn't you explain that actually? Anna? Well, that actually, not actually, that's not that's not that. actually a Chinese idea. Although most people probably right. a, 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 a associate it with China now. Yeah, right? I mean, it goes back to 1954 when actually India and China were negotiating a treaty on uh, trade between Tibet and uh, India. So one of the so Ch- China at that point had anxieties on what India was trying to do in Tibet. Uh, I mean, this is 1954. The Dalai Lama is still in Tibet. Uh, and there was this anxiety and almost paranoia in China that India was working to some, cause problems there. So, th- so among th- the different sort of agreements that came out of this 1954 trading deal was this vague five points that they would abide by. Right. And it's uh, and so it's it's hard to remember, but it's like mutual. Uh, respect for sovereignty and non territory and non-interference and peaceful coexistence and uh, and I think it's uh, what else is non-aggression as well and uh, something vague like working for mutual benefit and equality and co-op something like that so uh, this We're was the 60th anniversary of this now right? yep and uh, but I mean it's a we call it the punch shield in India which is uh, the five principles um, and I think a year after that, Sorry, the reason again the punch the, the punch shield the punch shield yeah. But the reason why it got prominence was because of Bandung the, taking place the, in 1955, the Asian African Conference. So there, Myanmar, uh, Burma uh, backed it as well. So, but as far as India and China were concerned, it sort of lapsed because it was a seven or eight year deal. And as you know, 1962. Uh, India and China fought a war. So I think one would think that that would have been the end of Panchil because it uh, failed. And mm-hmm. I mean, the two founding proponents of it went to war, at, I mean, while this was in effect. But for China, why uh, China finds Panchil to be so useful is mainly because of Tibet, Taiwan, and Xinjiang. And the main aspect of it is non interference, which you hear China say at every meeting with any, with any foreign leader, it That's comes right. up. 
So it's, it's funny in a way that China sort of owned this idea now. And that's why it's China that's celebrating this anniversary and hosting it here. And Xi Jinping is supposed to give a pretty important speech on Chinese foreign policy on Saturday. All, all of his speeches are important. I've learned John, that. Yep. John, 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 <laughs> so it's, it's interesting in a way how it's changed. And in India now, it's seen it with a little bit of suspicion because it was something that Nehru came up with. So there's a popular perception that, oh, Nehru sort of, you know, he, he, blew, was, it. Rom- he blew it, he romanticized China, look what they did. They invaded us. I mean, it's, it's, it's a popular perception, even if not entirely accurate. Right. So it's, it's funny that now it's taken currency in China. So, but, it's, but I mean, people are surprised. I mean, it seems like an obscure and forgotten 60-year-old idea. But, I mean, they've invited, they wanted India's president to come, but our vice president's coming instead. And uh, Myanmar's president is coming here as well. So she's giving a speech. Lika Chan's giving a speech. It's, I mean, they're making a pretty big deal of this. Hmm. Well, you said that this, this actually grew out of a, a trade arrangement originally uh, involving Tibet. A uh, trade, actually, uh, between these two Asian superpowers or uh, I don't know if we can call them both. But anyway, uh, trade has increased by, I think, 30% a year across 10 years now between years 2003 and 2012. And it's, uh, by the end of 2012, it was like $64.5 billion. Uh, Are we expecting trade with China, which is already India's biggest trade partner, to continue to accelerate or, I mean... It's been. I mean, I think trade peaked in 2011, and it Mm -hmm. was about 73 billion dollars. And since then, we've actually had, I think, two years of declines. But I think that's more part of it's also to do with India's economy, which is growing slower. Five percent. Yeah, and as well as the changes that are happening in China as well, because one of the biggest driving forces of trade was China importing large quantities of iron ore. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've been seeing stories of problems here in the steel industry and going, and that they have oversupply of ores. So there's a big uh, correction happening. Um, so I think the last two years, with, with the general change that's been happening in India and China, it's sort of slumped. So now what they are trying to do is make up for it by opening the door for Chinese investment in India. And I think in China, there's the people are pretty bullish that Modi would be far more open than the previous government was, at least looking at the track record um, in Gujarat, where China was one of the biggest foreign investors. So would that include sensitive uh, companies, for example, Huawei, which in India, like Australia and the United States, has had a very tough time? Yeah, Huawei has had a very tough time in India, but it's interesting. I was just discussing this with another journalist the other day that I haven't seen any negative stories of Huawei in India in the last couple of years, which tells me that uh, they're doing something right. Um, and there's been no sign of them uh, toning down investments in India. They've opened up a new R&D center. Right. They've opened up one in Bangalore. They're opening up another one. I think I, I think Huawei is doing pretty well in India. Um, and, but I think they won't allow it in sensitive areas, especially in the northeast, in states that are the close to the border. Yeah, exactly. Right. In all the seven states that are bordering China, they, I don't, which need probably the most Talk amount of foreign investment yeah, yeah. Uh, in India. But but I think in roads and industrial parks, they're thinking of earmarking four or five areas, which would be exclusively for Chinese companies. So, so it'll be roads, rail, mining, uh, uh, the, these areas where the, they're going to be allowing infrastructure. Yeah, and rail, especially, I think China has agreed to work on three lines and, extend, and sort of help speeds go up. If you've traveled... Uh, by train in India, and if you travel by train in China, I mean, it's it's just every time for me, it's such a shocking contrast Not because day. 30 years ago, India had a bigger, better rail system, rail network, and now it's just no comparison. Just today, we had like a big derailment. Um, oh, no. 
So, uh, I mean, it's, you have safety issues, speed issues. So I think that thinking of China has already agreed to get involved in a big way. But India, you do have some sort of pushback against this because, it's, I mean, India is complicated. You have domestic lobbies as well. So, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, but given the mandate that Modi has, it's probably the, the best chance of having a big change in India's foreign investment environment. What I mean, you have a first past the poll principle, first past the post principle in right. Indian politics. So uh, there's just basically BJP and its allied parties absolutely dominate, right? I mean, this was not we've never seen anything no like this. Like this. Of, it's yeah, I mean, them single-handedly winning uh, such a huge Congress project. is over then. I mean, basically, I wouldn't say they're over in the sense that we've had. I mean, the BJP was decimated by the Congress in the past when. Uh, Indira Gandhi, the former leader, won so convincingly. I mean, it, maybe it, it cycles. And I think 10 years is a long time. You have anti-incumbency is, is something that you'd expect. And I, I mean, they've sort of dug their own grave with, the, with, the, with sort of the corruption that we saw in the last four or five years. It was like nothing that we've seen in India. So it was, I mean, <laughs> they were sort of asking for it. And the way the campaign went, I think they, they sort of were resigned to it as well. <laughs> Uh, one, one, one interesting thing I saw that Modi, actually, his first international port of call was Bhutan. Yes. Uh, and I know that, that, that China has been sort of courting Bhutan and trying to uh, to establish diplomatic relations, which it hasn't had with, with Bhutan, and that Bhutan's uh, holding out primarily out of concern uh, over how India w- will react to that. Um, is this perhaps setting the stage to make possible reconciliation between China and Bhutan? I think it's more uh, a reflection of the fact that the new government feels that the previous 10 years saw uh, neglect of India's immediate neighborhood. Uh, If you looked at our relations with Sri Lanka and Mm -hmm. Nepal and Bhutan and the Maldives as well. uh, Uh, All of whom were invited to the inauguration, right? Yes, exactly. And I think we saw India has had troubles with all of these countries. Uh, the last four or five years. Like a good example was a, was this famous port project in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. which uh, Rajapaksa first offered to India, and India turned it down. And then China went in and gave very easy credit. And I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing in India after that, saying that, look at them building the string of pearls and building the sport and things like that. But a lot of it was India's own doing and not being active enough uh, in the neighborhood. So I think by first inviting the leaders of all South Asian countries and then going to Bhutan, I think I think it's a, it's a very strong statement that our first priority is going to be our immediate neighborhood. And then that would probably be followed by Asia and then probably other countries. I think that would be a sort of a fair assessment of how they're going to go forward. But with China and Bhutan, um, I think China was close to trying to open a consulate there and establish relations in 2011. And that was when uh, Wen Jiabao met with uh, Bhutan's prime minister at the time in Brazil when there was a UN meeting of uh, of some kind. And I think that sort of, that meeting panicked a lot of people in India as it was the first time that the prime ministers of Bhutan and China had met. Uh, But then we had an election in Bhutan the following year and uh, I mean, there's a lot of controversy about this election because there was a feeling that India was trying to back uh, another candidate who was sort of more had a more friendly disposition towards India. Mm. And what India did before the election was withdraw these very huge petroleum subsidies that it had offered Bhutan. So the pers- even if uh, though the Indian government denies this, the, the perception among it's most people in Bhutan was that this was well, this is what's going to happen. Right. So, uh, but then uh, so after the re-election. Uh, sorry, after the election, election um, 
we sort of haven't seen any movement between China and Bhutan. It's just been put on hold. So I think I don't think we, that's going to go forward for a while now uh, because the, there's been a complete shift uh, after the election two years ago. To your point about uh, about Modi's priority being the immediate neighborhood, I think maybe the most significant thing that he did uh, was immediately on, 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 on being appointed PM, reaching out to uh, Naraz Sharif, uh, the PM in Pakistan, and he in, fa- in fact attended the inauguration, which is is that unprecedented? But it is, is unprecedented. I mean, I, mean, I think I think it was a brilliant move on since his part. Forty-seven it hasn't happened. I think it was a really really smart move on so many levels because for one. The, when Modi got elected, I mean, there's been a lot of fear. Uh, some of it's alarmism that, you know, he's going to go to war with Pakistan. It's going to be a catastrophe. Terrible things are going to happen. Right? He sort of like very neatly just punctured all of that just by this one move. Uh, but, the, but the flip side is I don't think Manmohan Singh could have done that. I think he would have been sort of pilloried if he went and invited um, the Pakistani PM. Well, this so, is one of those, right, only Nixon could yes, go to absolutely. China and things, it's, right? It's that same logic. But I mean, I think that could apply with Pakistan. But with China, I don't know if we're going to see a huge shift that, like, for example, on the boundary dispute, is Modi going to settle it? I don't think so, only because, I mean, the dispute is just so intractable and difficult to resolve. And I, d- I don't think there's a huge reward. How so. much uh, uh, of uh, an issue is um, the going to Pakistan and uh, making better relations with Pakistan, how will that affect India's relations with China? How much sort of of a game is going on there where if India has better relations with Pakistan, it will somehow be bad for China? I think it's really interesting. I mean, on one level, that would make sense. But um, from China's point of view, I mean, China's ties with Pakistan have been so close. And there's been, I mean, now and then you see stories of everything that's happening in Xinjiang that, well, you know, this terrorism problem is going to change everything. China is going to dial back and not, you know, build its huge projects that it has in mind. But I haven't seen any sign of that. But um, I think that China's one concern would be that uh, China is now investing so much in projects uh, in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, which, which India says is its territory, but now under the control of Pakistan. And this is the only land area that connects Pakistan and China. Right. So China is now investing a lot of money in building roads, and they've, they've been planning a pipeline and a railway line. We don't know how much of this is feasible, given the instability both in Xinjiang and in, uh, in that Kashmir, part of yeah. Yeah, in Kashmir. But, I mean, if, if Pakistan was to reconsider that, um, I think that would be a huge issue for China, but I think that's sort of uh, we're sort of getting a bit ahead of ourselves. I think uh, I think as far as China is concerned now, it's it's it has besides its investments in Kashmir, it's generally not interfered or got into the India-Pakistan issues at least in the last ten fifteen years. So I don't think it'll be a huge issue as far as. China's concern. Yeah, I, I somehow don't anticipate that it will be. Uh, but what will be of of I think you know continuing concern right now is uh, the situation in Afghanistan with the American drawdown. Um, we saw the attack on the airport in Karachi uh, by the Pakistani Taliban. Is that sort of a harbinger of, of worse things to come? Can we expect that, that this part of the world is going to absorb more of Modi's attention and maybe, you know, us doing all this pontificating about uh, the Sino-Indian relations is just going to be relegated to a back seat because this is going to be the more pressing urgent issue? I think that's very possible. Yeah. I mean, just days after um, uh, Modi invited uh, Pakistan's prime minister, we had an attack uh, on India's embassy in Kabul. 
and I think that was seen by Afghans to be uh, carried out by the Lashkari Taiba of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's Lashkari Taiba yeah, was the I same the same group that was responsible for the Mumbai attacks, right? Yes, yeah. and so I think that um, I think there's a lot of concern in China, but I mean there's no sign of China doing anything. I mean they've been talking. I mean China, India, China, Pakistan, China, and Russia. They've been talking and talking and talking about Afghanistan, but are they, are they going to do anything? We haven't seen any. They sort of just wringing their hands about America leaving, but they haven't shown any signs of doing anything to step up. Huh. Well, I mean, it's it's going to be a fascinating story to watch unfold, and I, I really look forward to talking to you again. After, I mean, let's let's, let's meet back again in a couple of months and see how how things have played out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, as you know, we do this section uh, at the sh- of the show where we, we we make recommendations. I know I have a really ridiculously long list today, so I wanted to set aside a little bit of time for that. But yeah, as you know, usual, it's going to take another hour to get through your list. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll move quickly. I know some of it. So, so Jer- my Jeremy, recommendation is something not China related this this week. Uh, a, a podcast called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible about design, architecture, and related. That's things. a great podcast. It's That's a really a great good. Podcast. So the three recent, I just found out about it recently and started listening and I've listened to an episode on the design of high heel shoes um, which is fascinating you wear them uh, right I mean, uh, yeah you know I, uh, a topic of concern to me because I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how I go to work um, and skyjacking the, the, or, the, the, the very quaint origins of you know the hijacking of planes which used in to be in the able, 70s where you used to sort of not be able to well it was crazy Cubans who wanted to go to go to Havana. How, how is that on 99% Invisible? Because it's, it's, I mean, design is everything, right? And, uh. and the, the way an, air, an airline funnels you through its security procedures is an act of design. And it never used to exist because businesses, airlines didn't want to have to do that. Um, and people used to think that hijacking an airplane was kind of a, it, it wasn't really a dangerous thing because at worst you'd have to go to Havana for a night and then you get flown back. It was pre, um, you know, scary people <laughs> with bombs. Um, and another recent episode that was a lot of fun was he interviews a fellow who does another podcast called Song, uh, song Exploder, which basically talks to musicians about how they made a song and all the different elements of it. And the guest wow. he has uh, on that show, they, they talk about the theme music for, from House of Cards which is a show familiar to... Right, I, I can't even think of it right now for some reason. Uh, I yeah, yeah I just have the Game of Thrones theme right. stuck in my head after watching it for the last... <laughs> right, I've managed days, to I can't not think of get into that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, it's cuts better than the of, books. C- cuts me yeah. out of like 90% of conversations around... Oh, no, 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 no. Anath, what do you so have for us? For? Yeah, okay, that's, that's great, 99% invisible. Moving on, Anath. Well, two books that I have been reading now, I think... I think I mean since we spoke about India, I would re- I mean for someone to get a sense of um, the last ten years of India, I think a really good book is this book called The Accidental Prime Minister, mm. and it's uh, uh, written by uh, a man called Sanjaya Baru, who was the former press advisor to Manmohan Singh. So he sort of had this inside track on everything that happened, and I mean, uh, which most of it was things that went wrong uh, in the last. <laughs> Uh, 10 years. And ma- it mainly sort of focuses on the first five years, which was, which was the better part uh, of his uh, term. So I think it's a, it's a great insight into sort of getting a sense of why. I mean, it, it's a, it provides a, the backdrop to why Modi won so easily. Oh, excellent. So, well, so I, I, I would recommend that. I, I don't know if you've covered this before, but uh, I mean, we, uh, we recently had the, the Tiananmen anniversary. So I was reading uh, Louisa Lim's book. Right. 
And I thought it was, I mean, when I first People's heard Republic of, a, of Amnesia. Yes. But. And I mean, when I first heard of a new book on Tiananmen, I wasn't that interested. I thought, I mean, everything about, everything's been written about it. I just thought it was a, it was a great account, superbly reported, and I would strongly recommend it. I've heard only good things about it. Yeah. I've heard only good things. Although I, I guess the one, the one thing that sort of raised, I, I, I would caution people not to equate failure to recognize the iconic photo of the tank man with knowing nothing about Tiananmen. Right. And then I would also remind people that I know lots of people who have told me personally, when asked about this by foreign reporters, my immediate reaction is to say, I know nothing. I don't know. What are you talking about? Because it gets me out of a conversation quickly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, but that said, I think that, that uh, she, I, I, like I said, people whose opinions I very much trust uh, have, have highly recommended it to me. I may wait a little while before reading it because I've a little Tiananmen to death in the last right. couple of It months. was pretty hard, especially if you were on Twitter. It was kind of a uh, 24-7 hosepipe of Tiananmen from right. mostly yeah. angsty American liberals. True. But anyway. <laughs> another, no, another good book that I just started getting into is called The Perfumed Palace. I don't know if you've heard about no, this. No, but it's like... Uh, have you? No. Yeah, I, the, the, the name sounds familiar. No, I just yeah. got this as a gift a couple of days ago, and it's about it's a history of the Muslims of Beijing. So, and, and it's, oh, and it has, oh, and it has, wow. like, I haven't heard of it. No, no, that yeah. I want to read. That I, I want. No, to. and it's it's not like a heavy book, and it's uh, I mean it's it's it has a lot of photographs as well, so it's it's oh, a wow. it's a bit of a light read, but I, I mean I've been enjoying it so far. Do so. they cover food? Does the book cover food? It does. Yes. Oh, okay, because that's so, that's all that matters to you. Right? Well, no, no, it's just that I mean Beijing food. If they were Muslims, had never been in Beijing. You know, they'd all be eating pig slop, basically. All the great Beijing foods. We, know, we used to actually dispatch. That, you know, my dad used. To, <laughs> my dad used to dispatch a driver to go to to Niujie early in the morning yeah. on certain days when they they knew that they would have like, those was the only days you could actually get like a beef tenderloin. You can right. actually get there. And I mean, no matter how but shitty But I mean, the like Shaobing, like right. a lot of the oh, yeah, classic yeah. Beijing foods. I mean, Beijing duck probably would well, be most Beijing Well, right. right. most I mean, Beijing xiaochi are of Muslim, Muslim food, derivation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so here it goes. I have, I have a, a kind of weird, long, kind of connected list of recommendations. It all began um, when I, I uh, saw a friend of mine, Angela Swin, uh, put on her Facebook page a piece that was actually from 2010, uh, in the New Republic by Mark Lilla, who is a professor of humanities in the Department of History at Columbia. A piece is called Reading Strauss in Beijing. It actually makes allusion to uh, a, a kind of critical allusion to a piece that Evan Osnos had written about um, neoconservatives in, or sort of, I don't know, the new left or the new neo-nationalists in, 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 in China. Anyway, um, it, it's, it's though written by somebody who'd spent only a very, very short time in China um, lecturing uh, for like a month or so, it actually illuminates a great deal about what I would consider sort of mainstream intellectual discourse in China uh, by looking at these two German philosophers, Leo Strauss, actually I guess he spent most of his time in the U.S., uh, uh, and Carl Schmitt. Um, Strauss is sort of a touchstone for a lot of neoconservatives in America, but I think uh, that part of Lilla's project is to kind of rescue him from, from that. And then Carl Schmitt, who was actually... Uh, a Nazi sympathizer, a Nazi apologist, uh, but uh, these two guys apparently, and and this this not isn't something that I had been really finely attuned to, or, or being really you know widely read and 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 disputed, um, and were very central to the discourse in China, um, really in the last in the last you know six seven years. 
Um, it's from 2010, but it's still very much worth reading. It's Reading Strauss in Beijing. Uh, that actually led me to another uh, Mark Lilla essay in the New Republic when I said, hey, hey, who is this guy? This guy's really fascinating. And I read his most recent piece, which is called The Truth About Our Libertarian Age, Why the Dogma of Democracy Doesn't Always Make the World Better. It's a wonderful essay about the shallowness of Western political thinking uh, in the period after the end of the Cold War. How, uh, you know, for all its hor- the horrors, end, end of history era. Right, right. The end of history era. I mean, it's an implicit sort of takedown of Fukuyama, who, who, by the way, you know, has really kind of repudiated. I mean, his, I mean, he's kind of dis- disowned his own ideas, but. And that led me to yet another piece by him, this time in, in the New York Review of Books, which was a, another great essay, from about, again, from about four years ago. It was uh, about the Tea Party. It's called the Tea Party Jacobins, and, um, you know, re- reference to, to the, the, the French Revolution, uh, which is just great. I mean, there's an American who loathes the Tea Party and everything that it's about. That was a lot of fun. And it, it, after reading these things, I decided, okay, so now what's this guy written? Uh, his most recent book is called The Stillborn God, Religion, Politics, and the Modern West, which is just great. I'm about a third of the way done with it. Um, if you want a sort of a precy of what it's about, you can go on YouTube and search uh, for a, a, a lecture that he did at, uh, at Georgetown. Uh, I think he's on a panel, but you know, you can, it's an hour long or so, but you just listen to the first, or even this, this five-minute excerpt of it uh, where he talks about how Hobbes really sort of changed the, the, the conversation. He, he talks about uh, th- th- uh, basically uh, theological politics. About, about, uh, this is an idea he borrows from Strauss. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting, though, about how uh, you know, this whole idea of separation of church and state, how um, it was really quite contingent. It really emer- it's a very special thing that he emerged in the West, and it's sort of the history of how that happened how we moved away from what is the human norm, which is that, you know, our our politics is essentially confessional, I mean, through most of human history, and, you know, why it is that in the 17th century there was this sort of break in, in the West. And then, okay, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm running along here. This but is a long I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, okay I, I know, but I'm going to put all the links on it. We should on. have I'm, a whole podcast devoted to this. Yeah, uh, but but this is this is my weekend last weekend. This is the whole weekend I spent, like, on this, the, the trail of, of, of these ideas. Instead of playing with your kids, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I did not play with my kids. I ignored my spouse completely. I, I blew off lots of friends. I didn't cook any meals. I just read all this shit. Um, so then I... I, I uh, Fired off a note to uh, Pankaj Mishra um, just to ask if he was familiar with Lilo's writings because he, it was, there was so much you know in common with things that I had discussed with him in the, in the past. And he, not surprisingly, he's a big fan. He, he thought I'd be interested in a, a piece that he had written, uh, which is my maybe fourth recommendation here, which is uh, a piece in the Huffington Post in February. It's called Worldwide Mutinies Against Globalization. By, by the way, he didn't like the title uh, it, it's not just the kind of you know anti-globalization screed uh, that, that that maybe that's that that title suggests. He's very thoughtful about this stuff. I mean, in the course of our, our conversation, you know, I mean, we really, well, he's he's no advocate of authoritarianism or anything like that. I mean, the the problem that he raises, of course, is that liberal democracy itself, the thing that he he, he finds to be such a problematic, is the only system that kind of defends the efforts of people like him to to you know to write critically i mean it's the, it's the only thing that sort of ensures that his his freedom to do that so he's obviously on the horns of, of some kind of dilemma there so um 
finally, last last thing I want to recommend. Uh, a resource without which I would have been, I would have been completely at sea trying to figure out Strauss and Schmidt and all this stuff. That's the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, plato.stanford.edu. If you've not found that, it's just an enormously scary, scary time suck for anybody with, with kind of a, a predilection for re- reading about obscure philosophers. Um, there's actually great stuff on the Warring States philosophers in, in, in China as well. It's really a great introduction to the political philosophies of the hundred schools. Um, so, okay, man, you've you've used up your I know. recommendations quite hey, for the next know. six weeks. All right, all right, yeah. So yeah, I get I get exonerated. The next week, I don't have to recommend, right? I'm just gonna listen to you guys. That's cool. Okay, so six recommendations for me. I'm I'm excused from from further recommendations, and you are excused from hearing me yak on. So hey, thanks, folks, for listening, and thanks enough for coming in. That was really great. Oh, my pleasure. We we uh we like I said, let's circle back and 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 talk about how things shake out. Uh, I'm very, very curious to see how this, uh, how Sino-Indian relations shape up in yeah, the Moody uh, Age. After war breaks out between Vietnam and China, let's That's uh, not going to happen. I'll be back for that. All right. <laughs> okay. So take care, and we'll see you next week, folks. Bye-bye.